Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Chris, you going to begin? I will begin. Hello and welcome to another conversation with John McKnight and Peter Block. Uh, this is Chris Witt, and I'd like to thank you all for joining us today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, John and Peter are the authors of The Abundant Community. Their work joins the movement to support neighborhoods in discovering their capacity to create a strong local co- economy, raise their children, sustain their health, and care for each other. Each of their guests is a social pioneer who is inventing an alternative future based on the gifts and capacities of its citizens. Our special guest today is David Matthews, President and CEO of the Kettering Foundation. For more than three decades, David has led the Foundation's work with communities and institutions who are trying to solve local problems, with their primary research question being, what does it take to make democracy work as it should? Before I turn things over to John McKnight, I would like to invite you into this conversation. There are two ways to join. If you dialed in, press star 8 on your phone to be put into a queue. If you're following along on the web, simply post your comments in the chat window. Uh, we're very interested in your thoughts and reflections. Uh, our website manager, Leslie Stephen, is supporting us in the chat room and will be able to respond to some queries there. After they've talked for a while, we'll open up the call. John, over to you now to begin today's conversation. Well, welcome, everybody. And uh, it's uh, a great privilege to have uh, Dave Matthews, an old colleague, uh, join us. Uh, Dave, uh, I think both Peter and I have thought it's very uh, significant that you've uh, had positions in all kinds of walks of life uh, and – we sort of wondered, as you think about yourself, how you came from where you were <laughs> as a young man to the the kind of ideas and thinking that are expressed in, for instance, your latest book, The Ecology of Democracy. What's the journey? Well, it, in, in many ways, it um, hadn't been a long one, and I, I find myself na- now um often back where i started <laughs> uh, my roots are in a small community um not the center of uh prosperity in the country rural south and uh, it's, it's the kind of community my friend nell lee wrote about in in uh, to kill a mockingbird um my grandfather was a great grandfather was a populist legislator um close to the farming people of the county which is about all we had i don't think there were more than two or three people in the whole county that had 
any significant money. Uh-huh. And my my grandfather was a school superintendent um, who was bothered by the inequity between uh, the rural schools where you, you were lucky to get five months of instruction and those within the small towns where you might get seven or eight. And uh, so that um, experience uh, has stayed with me, and I guess uh, I've taken it wherever I've gone. My dear friend, William Howard Taft IV, who was with me in the government, says, you know, you always do the same thing. You just get different people to pay for it. I guess that's <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and your your intense focus on the question of of democracy working at the local level. How'd you get there in particular? Well, uh, a couple of ways. One, there's so many definitions of democracy, but. We've started with the original one. It, it's, uh, it, it's significant that the Greeks who didn't invent democracy, they just invented the language for it. Democracy is really the accumulation of survival lessons going back to the earliest parts of human history. Uh-huh. But the Greeks were good at uh, naming it, and they chose two words. Uh, one, they chose a word for, actually it was a name for a, a village, a uh, Doric village, a demos. So it referred not to individuals, but to people collectively. Mm-hmm. And the other word they took from the vocabulary of Zeus, power, not just any kind of power, but sovereign or supreme power. And they put those two together. Um, they had... Uh, tried earlier reforms to codify their laws. Uh, They were having problems with uh, uh, sole rulers coming up, and uh, they needed to make some definitive statement about who was really in charge, What what was the final authority for what happened in their communities. And their answer was that the people collectively and that they got the power uh, through the things that they produced. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk now about empowering people, and but but if if I empower you now, which which one of us really has the power? Exactly. <laughs> it seemed to us that the only way you have power is to be able to make something, to do something, to produce something. You can't think of a powerful person in history that didn't make or do something. So the question we worked on our, in our research is how how people come to have power, how they make things collectively that make life collectively a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And uh, that abstraction uh, has a lot of meaning for us today because uh, our our democratic system is in is in trouble now. You know, democracy has always been a challenge, and in a sense, it's always been in trouble. But uh, we were just talking before the show about this election. Um, it it really to us reveals how 
deeply alienated people are from the political system, um, their loss of confidence in our major institutions, not just government, has been recorded for a long time, but now it, it seems to have spilled over into, um, in, into anger and uh, the withdrawal of legitimacy uh, from politics. And that, that, uh, that's very different, difficult, rather, for a, a democratic system because it depends and, and gets its legitimacy uh, from people. I, I mean, if, it weren't, if the system weren't considered legitimate, you, you couldn't hire enough police and tax collectors to uh, uh, make, make the machinery of government work. So, so democracy is not an abstract question now. It's a very real question. And not just in the U.S., you know, in the 80s and 90s, we went through um, some amazing, often velvet revolutions in which authoritarian regimes collapsed. But um, the, the road back to democracy has been difficult. Uh, think about the Arab Spring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, uh, some would say a complete turnaround, and they would... Uh, point to Russia. Um, the Middle East is uh, is a object lesson in how badly things can go. So uh, democracy's in trouble, and the major institutions are in trouble, and that, to our mind, brings us to where you and Peter are, back to the community. Uh, back to neighbors, uh, back to the places where people live. If there's going to be any restoration of the system, it's not likely to restore itself. And mm. have to look for where uh, the restoration might come from. And and people think it's not just us, but, but uh, some recent research that we've done uh, suggests that people think that it has to begin where they live and work and raise their families, in a word, in communities. Now, I notice uh, that one thing that, uh, that you've written is that you say politics is not simply passing legislation and electing representatives. It's about creating opportunities for citizens to make choices together on the issues that concern them most. And if we think about that locally, creating opportunities. I'm just uh, like your thoughts on uh, Kettering's role in uh, creating opportunities or, or, or facilitating or enhancing the opportunities for that kind of decision-making. Well, as you know, Kettering's a research organization, even though we're called a foundation. And as we followed this thought that power comes from the work used in producing things, then we begin to ask ourselves how this work is done, and it turns out that work is done pretty much the same way whatever the work is and wherever it's done. I mean, somebody's got to uh, agree that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody's got to uh, uh, make some decisions about how to deal with it. Somebody's got to marshal the resources. 
uh, somebody's got to organize the effort. And in the best of all worlds, uh, folks need to learn from what they do because they're going to have to do it all over again when the next problem comes along. So there's nothing exceptional about those. Those things happen every day in every community. They don't necessarily happen in ways that give people power. Uh, for example, take something seemingly inconsequential like who gets to name the problems and how do they describe them? I mean, that goes on. Newspapers are always saying the local uh, oh, a wise person is saying the problem is this, but uh, the names often don't have a lot to do with what people really care about. They're named in professional terms, which is fine for uh, big institutions, but people uh, see problems in terms of the way they those problems affect what they care about every day, what they care about for their family. So naming problems in terms that reflect what people care about makes a big difference. It takes something routine and turns it into an opportunity uh, for people to exercise power. So we've looked at all of the things that people do in the work they have to do to produce things and ask ourselves, where are there opportunities in the ordinary routines of life? And uh, we found them in unexpected places like something as seemingly ordinary as who gets to name the problems and how they name them. Peter, I know you've been interested in that question as well. Huge. So beautiful things you're saying, Dave. Could you give me an example of how problems get named in professional terms? I mean... Oh, all, all the time. Uh, have you uh, looked at uh, the clean water report in your newspaper lately? Um, if you could make heads or tails of that, I would, I would, even with all of your learning, I would be, I would be surprised. Um, uh, uh, expert terms uh, are very important. Uh, for the chemists who work to see that the Cincinnati water is not like the Flint, Michigan water, okay? Exactly. No, no problem with that. But for, for people, um, what they care about is um, not the millimeters of this, that, or other. They care about something basically human, safety for themselves and their family. Exactly. And... Um, so to make the water safe, uh, we put things in it. We put chlorine in it, for example, to kill bugs. And that's often debated in, in terms of whether there is too much chlorine or too little chlorine or whether there should be any chlorine at all. But it's not a chemical question. It's a question of what we are willing to do to be safe. How much uh, risk are we willing to take? Um, are we willing to have things added to our water that seem to make them safe? Uh, that's a difficult question. Um, that's a question of judgment, and there, there are no experts on questions of judgment. Mm -hmm. Also, people have to decide those questions. Unfortunately, the debates are uh, are about milliliters of that or uh, some something technical, 
and and there's no room for people to do anything but because they are unintentionally but very surely uh, 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 screened out of a debate that's carried on by in professional terms, and as a result, they they uh, uh, use an old they they look at the, what's in the newspaper and in the experts' reports, and they say, as folks in the South used to say, "That's not my dog in that fight," and they don't. Get yeah. it. You know, I thought I think very powerful what you're saying. A friend of mine was was mayor of Cincinnati, and I met with his father once. Mm-hmm. We're talk, talking about the news and uh, how the narrative defines who we are in many ways. And and I asked, I said, if we're going to start a, uh, an alternative journalism in Cincinnati, how would might you contribute? He says, I only want one one job. I want to decide what constitutes news. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was very, very wise, and, and in a way, uh, the, the, the storytellers we have now, you know, like you say, it's either highly professional or it's very, you know, sensational. But we have, have, yeah, we have a case study in in our files that might be of interest to you because it's about Cincinnati. Do you remember uh, when Cincinnati was suffering from race riots and? Uh, Nearly every guru um, who could come to town and advise you came. Uh, uh, Billy Graham, Al Sharpton, you remember that? 2001, absolutely. Well, um, a little group from Cincinnati came uh, to see us and said, uh, we're we're in terrible shape. We, We need you to come to Cincinnati and and hold some forums for us. And we said, yes. we said, no. But, and they said, well, fine. They said, you, you don't need us. You can do them yourself. There are, <laughs> there are people in, in um, Cincinnati Beautiful. who know our, about our work. So they, they began to hold neighborhood forums. Yes. And uh, the, a um, lot of the white liberal community wanted to, talk about race, uh, a lot of African-Americans in Cincinnati were saying, well, maybe we could do something about jobs, or what, what about the police, or what about the schools? So uh, these uh, neighborhoods got together, and they set themselves to the task of deciding something that they could do in their neighborhood that would make a better life for all folks in Cincinnati. There were hundreds of them. I don't know how many. It, Over 300. Yeah, it created uh, a uh, an organization called Neighbor to Neighbor, and the uh, uh, newspaper at the time uh, had a very um, imaginative and helpful editor, and uh, on the editorial page there was a cartoon and there were all of these signs about Cincinnati can't do this and Cincinnati can't do that. And there was a little placard from the forums that said, simply, Cincinnati can. Yes. It, it was an amazing story. Uh, we, we went back later, though, uh, were asked back to talk to some of the uh, uh, leading lights in Cincinnati, and nobody remembered it. Nobody wow. remembered it. Well, there there was a civic group called Cincinnati Can, 
Yeah. It's functioned for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's a great story. Yeah. You know, I think the the other thing that strikes me is very powerful in what you said is that people's alienation. Well, maybe it's a question. You know, you talk about people feeling alienated in democracy and maybe in more trouble than we imagine. You, and then you said uh, citizens producing something. Do you think people are partly alienated because they feel they've, they've stopped being producers or something? Well, th- th- that's where uh, uh, local action. Um, what's missing is the sense that we can make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefulness and, and, and the country bogs down when we lose that can-do spirit that's always been characteristic of America. Um, and what people are finding is that getting together uh, with their neighbors to do something. It may not save the world, but it teaches an important lesson that people, when they combine their forces, can in fact do something. There's a story in uh, one of the reports uh, we have just gotten uh, about a community and the schoolhouse was peeling and the paint was falling off and it looked terrible. And so a group of people, you know, the school board didn't have any money and couldn't get to it. But so the folks in the neighborhood got together and took their paint scrapers and their brushes and got a little paint, and they repainted the school. And some the, the uh, judgment was, well, this was nice, but that's really not going to save the community. And folks said, you don't understand. The purpose of the project was not to get paint on the walls of the building. The purpose of the project was to demonstrate that when we got together, we could make a difference. Yeah. Beautiful. Dave, one of the things that I've noticed over the years in terms of neighborhoods and the kinds of collective action is that uh, there there tends to be uh, action that is focused on advocacy, uh, trying to get uh, institutions to provide or do things, schools do things better, city do things better. And uh, a lot of politics has to do with the means by which that advocacy can take place, and then there's direct advocacy. And uh, so a lot of thinking about uh, the politics of community uh, tends to end up with advocacy. But you keep using the word productivity. Now, advocacy, it seems to me, uh, in place in a neighborhood, is really sort of a consumer movement. It's saying, you teach my children. Mm-hmm. You make me healthy, medical system. Yeah. And uh, so the, the the role you're talking about seems to me uh, uncommonly recognized, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And the heart of the matter. Uh, so much of what we talk about in terms of powerful citizen action is advocacy to get institutions to be responsive. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'd like you to reflect on on the the balance of the production versus the consumer advocacy. Well, uh, there's nothing wrong with 
advocacy. It's very American. Oh, no, right. They're all advocates of one thing or another. But I think what's missing is the recognition that the community itself is an educational institution. The community right. itself is an educational institution. And people not recognizing that don't tap into the educational resources of the community, which begin in families and extend on to all kinds of in, in <coughs> and and so they they go to the institutions hat in hand and they are successful sometimes and not successful others. But in any any case, the uh, educational forces in the community go untapped. Uh, there is a, uh, a case study in Lexicon, Kentucky of some kids who are uh, in one of these alternative schools and they spend a lot of time with their heads down on the table trying to get a nap. And uh, uh, so, so some principal teamed up with a guy that owns a farm for old retired uh, Kentucky Derby winners. And he takes the kids uh, to this racehorse farm. And they began to teach a little history. Did you know that the, the first uh, 21st Kentucky Derby winners were African Americans? Well, nobody knew that. I may have the numbers wrong, but, but the ratio is, is right. Uh, and then they throw in a little biology and a little zoology. And pretty soon kids that are asleep at the table are up and looking and patting the horses and learning. So here's a resource in a community. Who would ever thought that a racehorse farm was a school? <laughs> and who would thought that just folks uh, running the stables were teachers? They are and can be. So that's, it seems to me, what we're missing. Uh, the community is the educational institution. The school is there to support it. We've got it completely turned around. We think it's just there to support the school. No, it's the other way around. And speaking about effective advocacy, there's a story uh, in, uh, about a community who's having uh, problems with uh, drugs. And, you know, it was a tough neighborhood and they would run the drug, the police would come and they'd run the drug dealers out and then they would return. And, and uh, so finally, a little neighborhood association, John, one of your associations, calls and says the drug dealers are, are back and the police chief says, you know, that's a real dangerous neighborhood and we've got a lot of other stuff to do, but we'll be there as soon as you can. And the leader of the neighborhood said, don't worry, we'll take care of it ourselves. And the police chief said, we'll be there in 15 minutes. <laughs> okay. Now, when citizens are productive, when citizens can do things, whether it's educate or increase safety, they are much more effective advocates because they're not just consumers. Well, yeah, I know Kettering has publications, and you have often spoken about the fact that certainly over the last two generations, we've seen ever more the sense <clears throat> at the local level that uh, 
the, the, the basics of life are institutionally produced. Not, not that the community is an educator, but yeah. school has a monopoly on education, right? And, and the medical system has a monopoly on uh, health, which is obviously not the case. So that we have seen, it seems to me, a process by which institutional growth has had as one of its effects uh, the translation of community functions over into institutional production. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, have you seen that, and what do we do about that? Well, um, I think uh, what we're dealing with is the perception that the schools are the educators and we can just turn the kids over them, or that the medical center is the source of health and we can just turn things over to them. There probably was a time when professionals in those fields thought that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've just been looking at uh, uh, some uh, matters that have to do with health. And uh, as you know, John, uh, I spent some time in the federal government uh, looking at the massive uh, health establishment that the federal government has. Um, but what's happening in that field is that they realize that uh, health is more than medicine, that there are things that uh, physicians can do and things that they can't do, and that if people don't utilize their own capacities to stay well, uh, do some early checkups, do some preventing, then, then all of these advanced medicines and technologies are going to help us. So, so there's been a, a small but, uh, to my mind, very important turn toward what are called the behavioral indications of, of health. Right. The, uh, Obamacare has uh, started some initiatives uh, in which the uh, health professionals um, are now working with folks to keep them from going back into the uh, emergency rooms, uh, following up. Uh, so there's a there's a there's some interesting developments there. Uh, I wish there were more in ed, uh, in education. There are also some in uh, in economic development. Uh, we were talking earlier about uh, our uh, 20 years or so of working with groups in uh, in Cuba, and um, uh, one of the strongest uh, things they have are their communities and. And communities have a lot to do with the economy. I mean, that's what Deng Xiaoping uh, based the economic revolution in China on. So communities, the the character of a community relates very directly to the strength of the economy, to the quality of the education people, to their health, certainly to their ability uh, to be resilient, to... uh, 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 to natural disasters, uh, the mm-hmm. community is m- m- just significantly undervalued, uh, but there is a lot of research coming in now uh, that says that is absolutely wrong, that the community is more than just a place where people live. Right. You know, uh, I was talking, I, as you know, I started my life as a neighborhood organizer in Chicago, and uh, I was talking to another uh, ancient organizer <laughs> fairly recently, 
And he was saying, you know, now we're talking about 60 years ago. Yeah. He said, uh, in most neighborhoods, he said, what we were doing was finding the places where people were together and bringing those those entities together. Mm-hmm. And, and he said they were the family and the extended family. Uh, they were the church. They were the school. And they were the political organization. Mm-hmm. And he said, what's happened since then, which makes uh, community organizing or neighborhood organizing so difficult, is <clears throat> that the families are much more fragile and uh, under the gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and many are one-parent families. And he says that the churches and the church attendance is down. Mm-hmm. And he says uh, the schools just don't seem to be able, even when we put pressure on them, to educate our kids. Yeah. And politics has moved. Uh, the political system, as bad as it might have been, <laughs> the machine, <laughs> but it's it's moved into a television screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's saying the very basis around which collective life takes place at the neighborhood level mm-hmm. has has weakened. Mm. And that's certainly true of the associational sector yeah. in general that Putnam is documenting. Yeah. Yeah. And so it uh thinking seriously about collective action for uh, uh production at the local level. Yeah. The structures that that uh, once had those capacities seem to have weakened a great deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, where do we go with that? Well, I'm a little bit more optimistic than you are, John. I, I, you were. Well, I don't want to. I'm sure that's the problem. <laughs> I got my own optimism. <laughs> uh, the um, you're right that there's been serious deterioration in a lot of the social structures, but human beings are social animals. Um, they're going to congregate. They're going to associate some way. Yeah. What we've been interested in are the kind of below the radar screen mm-hmm. uh, right. <clears throat> uh, associational networking right. activities um, that are there. We don't didn't know what to call them, but because they they weren't organizations, so we finally just called them blobs uh, <laughs> because they were amorphous in shape and and. Uh, uh, there, uh, there do seem to be a lot of those just folks getting together, um, yeah. nothing formal about it, um, and maybe helping realize people they have the power to do that and the power in doing that is one of the challenges that we ought to take up. But your comments remind me uh, of a question that we are toying with, maybe you have some thoughts about it, is that um, one argument, in fact, uh, Eleanor Ostrom, our neighbor over here in Indiana, won the Nobel Prize for showing it was more than an argument. Yeah. (laughs) These big institutions, schools and hospitals and um, police forces, they, they really can't be effective without what she called the co-production of public goods by citizens working with citizens. 
Mm-hmm. So in, in a simple sense, if people in the neighborhood don't care about crime, you can't hire enough police. Yeah. And uh, I remember stories from my grandfather of his school days, you know, very small rural school. But you couldn't go to school unless you knew how to read and write. <laughs> Why send a kid to school who can't read and write? So the family had 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 to do the co-production of of reading. Yeah. And and you you're right that 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 has uh, deteriorated as we have deferred we have deferred to these large institutions, which turn out to be kind of like the Wizard of Oz, not as powerful as they seem. Yeah. You know, I I would. Before we take a break for questions, the poverty conversation is something that interests me a great deal. And it seems in some ways that it's been intractable. So even though our region may do well, the number of you know, people who are marginalized stays the same or grows. And I'm wondering, and then the answer always seems to be more institutional involvement, more job training. Now we're going to start sending kids to school at the age of four mm-hmm. and three. What's, what do you think would be a co-productive or an alternative way of thinking about uh, the people on the margins and people that we, the working poor? That, you know, I, I'm not even sure I want to call a person poor because it defines them as an economic unit and ignores everything else about them. What are well, your thoughts take about that? Yeah, I... It seems to me that uh, John McKnight is is a true genius in his argument uh, that people who appear to others to be on the margins, they may not know they're on the margins, but to others on the margins, have assets, that there are things that they can do, that no human being is absent some inherent power. And to recognize those assets and not to continue to focus on their needs and that they're on the margins. And I mean, it's not to be, uh, uh, you can't look at a person who's hungry and say that's a figment of their imagination. It's not. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand, to ignore that they have capacities uh, right. uh, seems to me to be tragic. And it's John who's, who's, Yes. Done a great service by calling attention to that. Right. I agree. And Dave, uh, <clears throat> one of the things that we've been uh, sort of looking at and trying to support is five different neighborhoods where uh, local residents, probably a person on each block as a starter, mm-hmm. have begun to go door to door and ask people. Uh, what what do you have that you would be willing to contribute to the well-being of this community? And they have some categories that they ask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that everybody who does this comes back with in great surprise is that no matter what level of income the neighborhood is, what you can see is that most people, if you ask them questions like, uh, what gifts do you have? What skills do you have? What do you care about the most? What would you be willing to teach? Mm-hmm. We'll give you three or four answers to each of those on average. Mm-hmm. In neighborhoods uh, that people would say are 
you know, violent, bereft of neighborhoods. We know you can go door to door and find in almost any household at least one and often two or three people who have something that they think is a value that they can offer. It's just nobody ever asks. Yeah. So this, this, I think the movement ahead is one that assumes that the dilemma we have <laughs> is people are waiting to contribute. Yes. But nobody's asking. And so what we're trying to look at is what are the asking processes that seem to begin to make visible mm. what folks have to contribute and collectivize those interests? It's, that's a really hopeful thing to me. Yeah, that's Let me, uh, on target. I want to stop for a minute if we could. We're 40 minutes into it. And Chris, maybe you could invite people if they have questions or comments and remind them how to do that so we could uh, give people a chance to join the conversation. Could you do that, Chris? Certainly happy to. Um, for those of you who are called in, if in fact you wish to make a comment or ask uh, Peter, John, or David, a, a question. Press 8 on your phone, and we will take you in the order in which you do that, um, one at a time. Um, so uh, please feel free, uh, because I know that uh, uh, everyone would like to hear your question or hear your comment. Okay. Thank you. You just interrupt, Chris, if people want to say something. Okay. Will do. There was a uh, earlier, I'll read you a chat comment. It said, when we talk about co-production, are we inadvertently reinforcing our economies, overvaluing of productivity, and taking connectivity for granted? Did one of you like to comment on that? It's been a while ago, but... Yeah, uh, that's uh, straight out of Eleanor Ostrom's. I, I don't think she... That's what she meant by co production. She was simply looking for a word uh, to to talk about what people can make, what they can make. Yes. Uh, you can substitute the word making for production if you like, and has the you'll have the gist of what she was arguing. Yeah. You know, the other uh, in listening to you, John and I and uh, the colleague Walter uh, Brueggemann just wrote a book about departing from the consumer culture. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you, is, that a, is that part of what's happening now? Do you think that's part of what underneath the radar people are kind of withdrawing? Do you think that's too idealistic or dreamy a thought? Or uh, I just saw an ad for glasses that said the average woman now has 27 pairs of shoes but only one pair of glasses. Why don't we do something about that? And it just seemed uh, kind of stunning to me that I need 27 pairs of glasses now. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts about this notion of an alternative to a consumer culture, Dave? You, were you asking me, or was that just... I am. I am asking you. Well, it's... it's, um, it's part and parcel, I think, of the way uh, citizens are seen and often see themselves. Um, the consumer movement uh, 
really resonates with people. I mean, that's what we all do. Uh, and and the the notion of citizens as producers more than consumers. Yeah. The uh, yeah. notion of, of citizens as agents more than clients. Uh, the notion of, of citizens um, who make things uh, and gain power by making things. That's uh, not uh, prime time. Uh, right. that, 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 that's why we emphasize it so much in our work. And, and, and John has reported in some of his research, when you, when you begin to talk to people as though they were teachers and not just consumers of education, it, it, uh, it resonates with them. They like it. They pick up their shoulders. Uh, um, the uh, when when people uh, are dealt with uh, in terms of their uh, indigenous capacities, uh, it's transforming, and uh, um, that's that's where we need to work. Yeah. So let me ask, another, do we have something, Peter? I wondered if Chris had anybody calling in. Uh, no one yet. Okay. All right. Um, Dave, one other thing I was wondering about is uh, when you think about uh, collective decision-making that results in making and producing something at the very local level, yeah. um, the, uh, the question in, that I think is a pretty large question at the present time, if you think locally, is that we have come to have a kind of mobility that has resulted in people who are residentially in a place tend to be like-minded. And uh, so that raises the question, let's say that, however, they come together collectively and become producers. That's good. But where does diversity fit into this question of collective decision making. Gentlemen, we do have a call. Okay, should we take that or answer John's question? Let's do both. Why don't you answer his question then we'll take the call. Great. Uh, in, in our work, we've been struck by how diverse, supposedly demographically homogeneous groups are. Uh-huh. Um, you know, uh, even within ourselves, uh, we are diverse. We are a variety of opinions and things that we care about. Um, th- th- this notion that there is uh, that th- that we are homogeneous and that uh, the homogeneity is defined by uh, skin color or or something else. I, you know, I'm beginning to kind of wonder about that. And uh, <laughs> the, the um, we, we see groups who, who all look alike, but God, they don't think alike. I mean, mm-hmm. um, in my family, for example, um, that, I've never seen a more um, uh, outrageous group of independent thinkers. <laughs> uh, and we're, we're all supposed to be alike. So, yeah. so, so maybe... Um, and uh, you know we we need to appreciate our own diversity more. Yeah. And you sometimes know, sometimes I 
this kind of work that we're uh, the groups are doing in neighborhoods, asking people what they have to contribute. Yeah. You can go right down a block and ask everybody, what's your most significant gift, right? Mm-hmm. Ask 30 people. Yeah. 29 of the responses will be different. Mm. So that when you look at the capacity side of people's lives, that reveals the diversity, right? Yeah, good. And uh, it may be that when you... <laughs> When when you look at public issue side, mm-hmm. you may begin to see collectivity. Mm-hmm. That right. is, the block divides into into Democrats and Republicans. But but if you think of them as individuals with collective possibilities, there's great diversity. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of like mindedness may be a marketing convenience. Mm-hmm. I, you know, Generation X, Generation Y, mostly is marketing people trying to figure out how who are they and how we're going to sell to them. Exactly. And, uh, you know, all the things sold on like-mindedness, you're saying underneath the surface is just a, it's a, it's a concoction. Mm-hmm. How about if somebody's still on the line and patient, thank you for waiting, Chris, why don't you let's, let get somebody make a comment or ask a question. Hi. A couple minutes we're going to end. Hi, California. You're, you're on. Uh, give us a name yes. and make your comment or yes. give us your question. Yeah. Yeah. Dear Kestenbaum, and uh, I'm calling. Can you hear me? Yes. 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 I'm calling uh, to acknowledge what you're doing. I was surprised that uh, I was the only caller. Uh, that uh, I, To acknowledge what you're doing. Um, I'm a philosopher, and um, one of the themes that you get out of philosophy is that people spend their lifetime uh, congregating with each other. They they spend it in relationships. Uh, on the other hand, they know that when push comes to shove, they're all alone. And this conflict between community and isolation is, according to some, the very source of mental illness or mental confusion. And that will never go away. And uh, I just want to acknowledge from the bottom of my aging heart <laughs> that uh, it's wonderful to hear you speak. You speak from experience. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's therapeutic just to be part of this conversation. I think you need to hear that from the heart. It's not a question. It's an acknowledgement. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. So we have another. Uh, we do. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Southwest Ohio, you're on. Um, hi. This is a slightly different question, um, but but it also relates to communities, and it's a question about how uh, nowadays it seems as if communities are becoming much more coalesced around hating others or hating not me people. And I'm just wondering what sorts of things would help strengthen communities so that they can avoid having that sort of coalescence into either mob thinking or, or um, you know, the, the mass hate thinking that seems to be happening. Uh, John, Peter, uh, you all want to uh, take that? Or? <laughs> we'll let you start, I was, Dave. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping you'd have something to say, Dave. Uh, all right. Well, um, what we uh, a lot of our research is with uh, on people trying to make really difficult decisions. And um, I remember one case with a group 
uh, in uh, Israel, uh, Citizens Accord. It consists of uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews, um, secular Jews, um, uh, Bedouin Arabs, Palestinians. So there are at least four, if not five or six differences in the group. And they've tried to understand one another, and they've done all of the uh, uh, dialogues, and the and I'm sure those have helped some, but uh, as is obvious, that they haven't helped enough. And so they're doing something very simple now, uh, which they're not trying to light one another. They're just trying to solve some problems together, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I live in this community. Um, the water doesn't work. We don't have jobs. The schools aren't good, whatever it is. And they're getting together uh, to see if in that community these groups can do something, not because they agree, not because they are like one another, not because they like one another, but because they need one another. Yeah. The rock's in the road and they can't get And once they realize that they need one another, mm. need one another, uh, it begins to change they <coughs> the dynamics in the community. And uh, I'm encouraged by that. I, I think they're... Um, it, it's it's fi- fine to love our fellow man and to agree all the time and and to not hate, but uh, un- until that glorious day comes when that is the norm, we're just going to have to figure out how to work together. And once we try to do that, we can't escape the fact that we need one another. Yeah. Beautiful. I think there are two keys in, in that wonderful story. One is that we need to be face-to-face and personal to get away from abstractions that lead to stereotypes and hate. And the second thing is we need to be be together working together on something. And I think those two things are the key to an effective approach to dealing with what appears to be diversity but could emerge into commonality. Yeah, there's a wonderful Nelson Mandela quote on our our, uh, walls. He says, you know, when you begin to work with your enemy, he becomes your partner. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, we're pretty much at the point of uh, completion here. I wonder, uh, John or David, anything final you'd like to say about this conversation or to kind of uh, tie a knot to what's been a wonderful, wonderful uh, time together? Well, the great thing about it to me, Peter and John, is that there is no there is no knot to tie, that democracy is a journey, it's not a destination, it will always be a struggle, and that um, it's a great pleasure for me personally and our folks here to have some people to talk to who don't roll their eyes up at the ceiling when you start in talking about community and democracy. Uh, that's great. And I think that's why uh, it's it's been a... a Great pleasure to have you, have you with us because I think that you've had a 
major effect in the United States in spreading that sense of what makes democracy work. And uh, I want to say uh, thanks for an awful lot of people for what you've done. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I want to echo that too, Dave. Thank you so much for what you stand for, for the, the way you, all the different people you've gotten to pay for doing the same thing. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's a great gift by us and a great inspiration. So thank you very much. Uh, Chris, you want to close it out? I'll close up. Uh, yes, David, uh, many thanks. Um, and thanks to our listeners. Uh, if you'd like to know something more about Kettering Foundation, please visit www.kettering.org. And we also want to invite you to join us next time on March 8th when Peter John and Walter Brueggemann will be talking about their new book, it was mentioned, Another Kingdom, Departing the Consumer Culture. And then, until then, please visit our website, www.abundantcommunity.com. Stay in touch with us. This brings our program to a close today, and thanks again for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.